Jay right in your face. Welcome back to the Fadeaway Podcast Off-Season Edition, baby. Wow, we're changing it up this year. We're uh, trying to we're trying to use the off-season to actually provide our fans with extensive insight to the game. Yes. Knowledge to the game. So we're actually working on um, a bunch of guests. We're not going to say any names because we are a very su- superstitious podcast. Yeah. And uh, if you're in this business and you know you can't, nothing's official till you're on the phone with someone. So, um, but that being said, we are here today with some official news. Um, so if you guys have been following the podcast, you know, Zade, you know, we've been talking to Samson Folk. We've talked to from Raptors Republic. Yep. We talked to Louis Zatzman from Raptors Republic. Yep. We were fortunate enough to talk to William Liu as well from mm-hmm. Yahoo, who is a uh, alumni yeah. of Raptors Republic. And each of those dudes, when they came on, they they mentioned this one person's name, um, whether it be, you know, he supported them, he helped them, he gave them, you know, expertise on what to do, yeah. how, to, how to conduct yourself as a journalist. And so we said, let's try naturally, it out. we got to go after this dude. Yeah. We got to go hunting this dude. So if you want to tell them the story, because we were supposed to talk to him way back way before, before the lockdown. Pre-COVID, yeah. And so, I guess that just didn't work. It just didn't work out because of Bro, we had booked COVID. him in, and I think he was supposed to come on like two days after the incident, the incident. with uh, Gobert. OKC. Gobert or yeah, OKC. Or, sorry, um, not OKC, with Utah. Yeah, with yeah. Gobert. Uh, so that was that was funny, um, and then I had reached out to him. I said, "Yo, check it. We're gonna have to probably pause this because it doesn't really make sense." Yeah. Uh, season came back. It was pretty busy for everyone, mm-hmm. and then off season came, and you and I sat and we're like, "Yo, we gotta Talk we gotta step guys. it up this summer. We gotta step it up this summer. Provide a different perspective. Provide uh, new knowledge." So, with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, we actually have the blake murphy on the mm-hmm. show today blake murphy is a writer for the the athletic toronto yeah. uh, also alumni of raptors republic he's worked for the score as well um so he's been around for a while doing uh, doing a lot of writing covering the raptors i think he had mentioned earlier in our in our phone call that he had a uh, media pass since 2015, 2015. It was part-time it was. in 2015 yeah. and it was full-time after that so, so he's he's definitely been around the block you know we talked a lot about you know, not only basketball, but a bunch about, you know, his journey as a reporter, as a writer and, you know, how he got into it. You know, some advice for anybody who's thinking about getting into sports journalism. Yeah. So that was really the interesting. The grind about it. Exactly. And obviously, you know, we're a basketball podcast. So we picked his brain a bit about the Raptors, you know, how the Raptors did this season, um, you know, and some very important decisions that the Raptors have coming up in the next two years, actually. So he was really insightful and he provided really good information on that. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, uh, the fadeaway wants you to enjoy this conversation with Blake Murphy. On the line with us now is Mr. Blake Murphy from the Athletic Toronto, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? Thanks a lot, man, uh, for joining us. We're doing really well. We appreciate your time. Are you are you on the West Coast? Or are you three hours behind us right now? No way. I'm in Toronto. Oh, you're yeah. in Toronto because when uh, when I was giving you a call, it said Vancouver, BC, so I wasn't sure. Oh, yeah. I've never been able to change that on Skype. <laughs> I lived out in Vancouver in like 2012 and 2013, and uh, I it's never let me change it. Every time I try to put in Toronto, it shoots back to I think sometimes it says Victoria and sometimes Vancouver. Yeah. No, I I understand. No, I just wanted to ask. I wasn't sure because we had um, we had Samson on and he was he was he was in Mexico yeah. City and I and I had no idea. I did not expect that at all. Um, so I was like, well, maybe you guys are all over the place, but uh, writing for for Toronto. So yeah, um, I, I'm certainly not down in Mexico all hand <laughs> posting thirst traps on Instagram. But you know, someone from Raptors Republic has to hold it down with that stuff. So yeah, so, so we nominated Samson and. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And speaking of Raptors Republic, we actually had the the luxury of having him and, and Louis uh, Zatzman on as well. We had William Liu, who's an alum, and they all mentioned your name, and that's sort of how we <laughs> came to you here. We're like, uh, we, we got we to gotta pick Blake's brain. So, again, man, thanks so much uh, for your time today. Yeah, no problem at all. So, yeah, just to get started, you know, we're just curious as to, as people who aren't necessarily within, you know, the journalist community how does one you know get started with that how did you start off how did you find your interest especially with 
you know, basketball and the Raptors? And how did you kind of connect that to journalism? How did you maybe just get that going from the beginning? Uh, yeah, I would say accidentally. Um, no, I, I, I started writing just for fun. Um, like, I think, I think the first thing I wrote was like a March Madness preview through the lens of like NBA prospects that I liked. And I just shared it with friends on Facebook and I enjoyed the process. So I tried my hand writing a few blogs. But at that point, like I was almost done business school. Uh, I was enrolled in law school at that point. Oh, wow. So I wasn't doing it as anything more than uh, just something to kind of kill the time on the side. Uh, I was an RA in fourth year of university. So I had a lot of like nights where I had to be up really late anyway. So I was just, I would just watch sports and write about it. Um, and then eventually, you know, I, I deferred going to law school because I couldn't really afford it right away. And, and then during that time, I was still blogging for fun and working. Uh, and then I kind of decided that I, I wanted to give it a, a proper try. I thought maybe I was good enough. Uh, so then I went back to school. I went to UBC, and that's that's why I lived out west for a little mm, bit. Right. Um, but I ended up, ended up um, jobbing out of there and, and going to uh, the score from there. And kind of what I did during that one school year was just – use that time to get a ton of experience writing all over the place and figuring out what I liked writing about most and getting experience doing like play-by-play and working for an athletic department and stuff like that. Uh, so really the first few years of it were just like, they were strictly for fun, just blogging as a hobby. Uh, and then a couple years in, I decided I wanted to try it and went back to school and stuff like that, which is obviously uh, a longer and kind of more winding path than than you maybe need to take um but also you know going to business school and working for a few years allowed me the kind of wiggle room and insulation to you know this industry makes you work sure. for cheap or work for free a lot so of course yeah. no absolutely and that was that was actually one thing we wanted to to talk to you about because you mentioned you went to business school you were enrolled in law school but a lot of the guys that we speak with they actually went to school for journalism and that was sort of their educational background. Now, when you went to UBC, is that what you actually studied that year? Was it anything with sports journalism or what did you do there? I wasn't sports journalism specifically. It was a master's of journalism in general. And actually their program, um, you know, it's a really good program. It turns out a lot of like CBC people and people who go on to do these great documentaries that actually matter and help the world rather than, uh, <laughs> you know, the nonsense I do. And it was Honestly, it was such an eye-opening experience because, like, not to slander the business school I went to, but you don't really do a lot of stuff that focuses on, you know, the impact that corporations have and stuff like that. You're just about get the money. And then being in the UBC journalism program where, like, they mandate you go into uh, marginalized communities to to find stories there. And they mandate that you do uh, stories on the indigenous communities around Vancouver and in BC. Uh, it was a really good experience for that. Um, but for me, mostly it was about you know, I'm not working a full-time job anymore. I have all this time to write. I worked for the athletic department. Uh, you know, I had to work some side jobs to, to keep money coming in. Like I washed windows. I was an extra in TV and movies. Um, I basically, you know, whatever to pay the bills. But um, the big thing for me wasn't really the the school. That that was great for me as a person and kind of expanding my, my horizons as like an adult interested in the world around me. Um, but mostly it was just about buying myself some time to see if I was good enough at writing and to just write a ton in the interim. So what was, what was something that you would say, you know, maybe the most important thing you picked up from that year, you know, you, you talk about, you know, from what I'm understanding, you know, kind of just like the hustle of it, working side jobs just to keep money going while still writing, while still pursuing this one year, this education. Um, you talk about, you know, a tough decision to, you know, obviously, defer law school to kind of change your entire future and your plan. So what was something that you really picked up that you still carry with you till today that, that, that one year really taught you? Yeah. I mean, not to like, I don't want to sound arrogant or whatever, but like it's, it's that grind is what I really picked up. And I used that time to write so much. And obviously, you know, at a basic level, the the first advice you give anyone who wants to do writing or podcasting or, or anything like that is to get reps in. Not only, um, you know, to get your name out there, but because you'll just get better from writing a lot and reading a lot and reading your own work back. And also, you know, finding out what kind of stuff you're best at and you like writing about. So, you know, in that year, maybe I figured out, hey, Blake, you're not that funny. Like, stay away from the, the kind of comedy <laughs> stuff, you know, stick to analytics. And that's, 
you know, in that year, I kind of found I had this this knack for explaining analytics across all sports, yeah. um, primarily in hockey and, and baseball at that time, you know, making those digestible and understandable for people. And then I was like, OK, well, maybe that's something that I can focus on uh, and, you know, make that part of part of what I'm doing. And, and you know, I, I would say also in that year, I, I that year is probably the most that I've written about hockey at any point in my career. And, you know, I grew up only playing hockey and only paying attention to hockey. And it wasn't until like university late high school and the lockout year when I was in university that I really started getting into basketball. And that year kind of sealed for me that uh, I had a lot more fun writing about basketball. Yeah. Um, Not that hockey isn't a great sport. It's just, you know, basketball is basketball is a soap opera. Yeah. And there's there's like, (laughs) no, there's never a shortage of things to write about. And yeah, um, it's so character driven and narrative driven. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the the biggest thing was the grind is and, and like, you know, I can look back to the start of that year and the end of that year and see growth in the quality of my work and like a narrowing of the focus of like, OK, what kind of writer am I going to be and what kind of stuff is going to, you know, what kind of stuff is not not that you want to you don't want to like box yourself in and be like, oh, I'm only writing about, you know, basketball tracking data. That's probably too narrow a niche. Um, but you can kind of find out, you know, what type of writer are you going to be? Are you going to be heavy on the pros? Are you going to be heavy on the analysis? Are you going to be very mm. conversational? Uh, and that's the kind of stuff you can only really figure out through a lot of reps. So, yeah, uh, sure. again, unfortunately, a lot of those reps tend to come with not a lot of people seeing it on your own blog or for <laughs> yeah. a school newspaper or Tell you know, whatever it, it is. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's that grind and that patience that, that yeah. kind of got and- and one thing I really enjoyed about what you said earlier is you got to put the reps in. And I remember when Zayda and I had first started this podcast, we were looking at something. I think it was podcasts on average last about 21 episodes <laughs> before they stop. They fizzle out. Yeah. The, you know, the, the person. And, and at the time, a friend of ours had started getting into podcasting as well. And around 2021, he started to like kind of fizzle out as well. <laughs> and I was like, man, I was looking at Zayda. I was like, dude, we got to be consistent because then. We hit around 2021, we hit the off season and it was adjustments and like, how do you stay relevant in the off season? And even in terms of just our style and how we do things and how we improved our first couple episodes. Oh, wow. We didn't really know what our style was. We were spinning numbers and, and, and stats and all these things, but we're like, that's not really who we are. You know, as much as I love analytics, it's not, it's just not the kind of person I am to sit there and talk a hundred percent about analytics. Right. So you got to find your style and you got to find what's consumable for your listener but the biggest thing as well is to just despite the reps being for you know your personal circle or network just keep grinding like you got to find ways to make it happen for yourself and you got you got to find ways to venture and it's tough and i'm sure you know that's one thing i want to ask you up next is sort of how you found your way going up through the ranks especially because listen our experience dealing with journalists sports journalists specifically it's not very you know crazy so our i haven't dealt with many of them but it seems to me like most of them know that journalism or writing or something that's something that they have a passion for it sounded to me like you had that passion and then you later turned it into an actual job so it sounded like a kind of a late bloomer i could be wrong you you can definitely correct me but how did you find you know the way to stand out or continue to move up through the ranks you said you started with the score um you're now with the athletic so that's that's big. Can you talk about that journey and, and how you found a way to just remain, you know, relevant in in the workplaces that you were at, I guess? Yeah, I mean, a big part of it is going to come down to self-motivation, right? And like, do you do you really enjoy it? And that's always been a big thing for me is like, you know, I talk about the, the grind and how much I wrote that year or how much I wrote on the side while I was at the score or when I was freelancing. But like none of that, like obviously it, it's a grind. And at the end of the season, you know, it's like an annual tradition when the season ends, I get sick because my body is just like, OK, you can take a break now. Um, but during the course of that, like there's never a time where I'm like, oh, shit, I have to write about Raptors Hornets today. Like, I don't want to watch this game. That never happens for me. So uh, I'm really fortunate in the sense that. Uh, even at like a high volume, um, I really, really enjoy the day to day of doing the work. And, um, you know, obviously it's such a cool job, especially now yeah. that I'm, I'm kind of established, um, you know, in the earlier on, I would say it was honestly, I, I wish I could give better and more streamlined uh, reflection than this. But really, it was a lot of it was kind of by the seat of my pants. Like I when I went back to journal, when I went to journalism school, 
Um, because I had the business degree as backup, uh, what I told myself was I had a five-year window. And if, um, you know, it, I think I was 24 at that point. So if I didn't, you know, if, if I was approaching 30 and I hadn't really figured it out in the industry yet, then, you know, it was probably time to be an adult and, and pivot back to an in, like uh, using my degree where I could, you know, make some money and of course, of um, course. be an adult. Um, but, you know, I didn't have like a step-by-step plan. I kind of went to school and then I pivoted because the score wanted to hire me. And then after two years at the score, um, you know, I think the score is a great place to work and, and I still have a lot of friends there. But for me, it was, you know, there was kind of a, a shelf life on doing that type of work. Um, right. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't quite the same opportunity to um, be an analyst the way Will Lou was at the end of his tenure there, or Joe Wolfond is now. Um, it was more, you know, when I was there, it was mostly just news stuff. Um, so I needed to, I needed to get out of that, you know, to to keep growing and to challenge myself. And to be completely honest, like I wasn't really enjoying it by the end there, just because like I wasn't feeling that upward momentum. So when I when I kind of struck out to do freelance on my own for a couple years, that was again I, I given myself kind of one year, and I was like, all right, you know, you're coming up to the end of this experiment. If you can't if you can't get stabilized and be enjoying it, you know, maybe it's time to look at something else. But fortunately, um, you know, those are things that worked out. And, and, you know, I don't want to as like I was able to get where I am a non-standard path because of just the grind or whatever. Like there's obviously a lot of good fortune in that with timing, with the scores expanding their newsroom, um, with privilege in terms of, having the ability having had the ability to go to undergrad and get that kind of plan b degree and then yeah, also yeah. when i went freelance i lived at home for a couple months i my family only lives like an hour and a half two hours outside of toronto so i was oh. able to do that and, and this is a really unfortunate part of the industry is that you know a lot of the times when i get asked on podcasts or, or in classrooms or whatever uh, about my path you know there's this stuff that i don't want other people to have to do like i don't want to tell someone yo you're gonna have to write you know, a thousand articles for free. And, and yeah. I think I, I think I, I think I have it somewhere that I like literally did like 4,000 articles for free. Wow. Um, and, and like most of that's Raptors Republic and some of it. So like, it's not, you know, obviously you're growing that and that's part of, you know, what, what got me where I am. So yeah, it's not like you sure. get zero return, but what I'm trying to say is that like, you know, it's not just the, it's not just hustle that gets yeah. you there and talent. Like, I, I got pretty lucky at a few different breaks and had this level of privilege that we as an industry really need to, um, you know, iron out. Like the fact that yeah. most people can't get a job in the industry without a low paying or non paying internship first, you know, you're, you're keeping a lot of potential talent out that way. And it's, um, you know, every time I reflect on my own story, you can't help but kind of notice those instances where I was like, oh shit, not everyone could. Sorry if I can't swear on this podcast, but um, <laughs> not. You're good. You're good. Like not everyone can go home and live in Drumbo, Ontario for seven or eight months so they don't have to pay rent for that long or, or not everyone has this, um, you know, has the ability to go to a four year undergrad program to yeah. to get what ended, you know, it wasn't planned as my plan B, but it ended up being my plan B. So, um, you know, I hope that things move in a direction where people who don't have that same level of opportunity are still going to have a way in, if that makes sense. No, I think it's really important that you mention that actually when you say you know you wrote 4000 articles essentially for free. I think it's very important for people to know, you know, whatever industry you're in, you're going to have to kind of pay your dues, especially earlier on. You're going to have to pay your dues, maybe not necessarily do things for free, but really grind, really do some, you know, grunt work, really focus on improving yourself, really focus on getting yourself better and networking and yeah. whatever it may be. It doesn't matter, you know, you could be a doctor, you could be, you know, even doctors get overworked when they're first. For sure. When well, they're first man, starting when, out, when right? doctors are doing their residency, right? They get 24-hour shifts. years of working, however, 70-plus hours a week, you're getting less than minimum wage. Exactly. There's so a grind it, to everything. It's really important, to, I think, to actually to highlight that, that, you know, no yeah. matter what industry you're in, you can be in business, you can be science, medical, healthcare, you know, in journalism, you're going to have to pay your dues at some point. So, you know, you mentioned writing 4,000 4, articles, you know, essentially for free. You mentioned your grind, your hustle. Now, how did you see, you know, all of that, you know, start to actually make a return? You know, you said you mentioned you got a job at the score. You worked with the Raptors Republic and now you're at the Athletic. You know, how did the opportunity at the Athletic come about? Um, and, you know, how did you see that, 
work you're putting in actually pay dividends later on. Sorry, Blake, before you actually answer that question, I just want to say one thing because earlier you, it's funny because you brought up an example that we use on this podcast all the time yeah. when we talk about like the random, you know, those games in the season that they're like, oh, it's a Tuesday night. I don't want to watch the Raps. And we always <laughs> use the Raptors and the Hornets. <laughs> and right when you said Raptors and Hornets, we sort of looked at each other. We were going to start laughing, man. I don't know if it's, if it's just bad on Charlotte or just – I don't know. They just don't show up against the Raptors or something. But that was I just found that funny. So I didn't want to interrupt, but I just thought that was. <laughs> you can only noted. take so many Kemba Walker buzzer beaters, right? Yeah. Or what's his name? Uh, Jeremy, Jeremy Lamb, Lamb from Half Court yeah. backwards. Yeah, exactly. yeah that's, uh, we could talk about that later. But sorry, go ahead with. Uh, I think it was uh, your your time with the Athletic. How did that opportunity come about? Yeah. So um, you know, after the score, I was doing freelance pretty much all over the place. So Raptors Republic was my home base. And, you know, that's where I did most of my stuff. But I was also freelancing for Vice and I was doing some work for the Raptors and I was doing some work for Sportsnet. And basically, whoever needed Raptors stuff, I was there. And I got, again, an instance where I got very fortunate with timing was that my first year freelancing was that 2015-2016 season where the Raptors went to the conference finals. It's the best season in franchise history. And suddenly, you know, the Leafs aren't that great that year. So suddenly there's everyone has budget to to get on the Raptors train and kind yes. of ride that out. So, yeah. um I think just after that season, the athletic launched and they came, one of the owners came to Toronto and he met with a few different writers across a few different sports. Eric Crean, my colleague at the athletic was a free agent at that time. And they signed him to be kind of their full-time guy and they grabbed me to be a freelance contributor. So um, for two seasons, I think it was two seasons I freelanced for them. And then, you know, it, it actually, it all kind of picked up before the Kawhi acquisition, like us talking about it and trying to figure it out. But then like once the Raptors got Kawhi, and again, another example of like fortunate timing on my part, the Raptors get Kawhi and suddenly they're in the title mix. Well, obviously that's an opportunity for um, some outlets to invest even heavier in the team. And and they wanted to take me from freelance to full-time. And, you know, part of that was also, hey, uh, you're writing for all these other places where people can read it for free. Why is someone going to pay to come behind a paywall to read you. So um, that was kind of the thinking there. And, and then obviously the the good timing of that being a championship year, um, I'm still there, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not, again, there aren't, it's not really like this linear thing where it was like, oh, this happened and then this happened and then this happened. It was kind of, yeah. You know, I don't know. There was never, there wasn't really like a step-by-step plan for me. It was just kind of get to the next thing yeah. and then see what the next thing that comes out. And, and like, I run into that now where it's like, okay, now I, I got here. Now what's the next thing? And I don't really know yeah. what the answer to that is right now. No, for sure. So it sounds like Kawhi's effect on the city was just more than on his teammates. He created <laughs> yeah. opportunities for just about everybody. Yeah. I mean, look at, how many people, look at how many people Yahoo had doing Raptor stuff that year. And I, yeah. and I know Yahoo scaled back afterwards. And obviously we at the athletic um, lost some people uh, as well during the pandemic. But you know, that was a, uh, the high tide rises all boats or whatever. That was, sure. that was good eating for everyone for a year. Absolutely. So you you had a media pass this year. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I've had a media okay. pass since I think it was part time in 2015, 2016. And it's okay. been full time since. Okay. So so you've been for anyone who doesn't know from our listeners what a media pass is. It means that Blake is in the the com- the post game the is a pregame any any conference with a, or any anything Press. with a player. Um He's there. He's asking the questions. So I need to hear from you. What is your favorite press conference moment of this year? Do you have one? Do you have three? Where, <laughs> where are we with that? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm always going to default to – can I use one from the, the year before instead? Yeah, just like my, It's my favorite press conference <laughs> thing. So, For sure. Um, 2018-19, I forget the game, but OG Ananobi scored a career high, and everyone was asking him – uh, after the game, like, did you know? Did you know you were close? Did you know when you got it? And he was, like, downplaying it the way OG does. And he's like, no, 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 I didn't know. No, I, I don't. I didn't realize. Yeah. And then he said something to me after, like, as he was walking away. Um, and I'm not going to repeat that here. But there was a time not that long after where he set a career high again. And I, I forget the reason. Something was going on in the locker room. Maybe it was might have been one of Jeremy Lin's first games, so there was like a bit a larger media contingent than normal. Right. But OG did instead of doing it in front of his locker, he did it in like a, this side room where you know if you've ever seen Nick Nurse's pre and post game press conferences, 
Um, you know, they're not in the dressing room. They're in this media room. So OG did it in there, and he's standing with, like, this incredibly wide-legged stance leaning up against the wall. And the first thing I asked him was, did you know that you were um, – did you know that you were closing in on a career high or whatever the the line of questioning was? And he just like full on giggled um, <laughs> and, and said, no. So that was, that was one of my favorite ones. There was also a time. So I, I'm sure you guys know, and, and usually I'm not the one who usually it's more of a Michael Grange thing, but um, Kyle Lowry will sometimes give us the business uh, a little bit. So anytime that happens, it's, it's like it's like getting Popoviched if you're a Spurs reporter. Like yeah, yeah. you don't want it to happen in the moment, but it's kind of it's kind of funny to reflect on. It. And Kyle hasn't done it to me that much, thankfully. But those yeah. are always uh, funny and terrifying moments for sure. And and that was actually one thing I wanted to ask you as well before we um, sort of take a dive right into the, the Raptors season. Is can you just explain how nerve wracking it is to be in in the presser, especially when? You know, they're going person by person, so you have one chance to, to shoot this one question that you have, better or be maybe good. maybe two chances. It better be a good question, A, and it better be communicated crisp. Like, it's got to be 100%. Um, so can you just talk about how nerve-wracking that was for you in the beginning and how you've transitioned to that now? Has it come more naturally, or do you still always have that, especially with certain guys that, you know, are maybe notorious for having those, those you know, responses? Um, so can you talk about that for a bit? Yeah, it's, it's tough, honestly. And, and like, especially early on, I struggled with it a lot. Cause I, you know, I deal with a lot of social anxiety. Like I don't like being in small groups like that anyway, and being on the spot. And like, I would always, I'm going to overshare. I would always like get really sweaty when I'm asking a question <laughs> early yeah. on. And like, that was especially true when I was uh, one of the newer people. And then like, there was also this layer of, um, especially early in the season, like I was always asking questions about the G League guys and the develop the guys at the end of the roster. And like before other people on the beat really knew me, they would kind of roll their eyes, like what the what the hell is this guy doing here? Mm-hmm. Asking about Bruno when like the Raptors are about to pay- play the Cavs, like what's yeah. going on? Um, and it, it does get a little bit easier. Like you know, the Zoom calls are weird because you get called on one at a time. In person, you can feel it out a little bit more and you can kind of tell when there's a break or when you have you can non-verbally, you know, kind of signal that you have a follow-up question. It can be a little bit more conversational, um, but it varies person by person and depending on the subject of the question. So, you know, during the NBA finals, when there are cameras on you and the microphone's getting passed around and you're asking Nick Nurse or Steve Kerr a question, that's a lot higher stress than you know being in the locker room after a hornets game asking Jakob hurdle about the dunk he had right like it like it it varies a lot by situation and you develop relationships with um with certain guys and and you get a rapport with them and that makes that makes it a little easier for those players um but there are still times where like i clam up or or like clam up's not the right word but just like you know i can't find the wording in my head and and a question comes out poorly and i beat myself up over it Mm -hmm. or um, you know, there was an instance on one of the Zoom calls uh, shortly before the the players, um, before the Bucks protested the game, or, or maybe shortly after. I can't remember the, the exact timing, uh, but I forgot that I had my hand raised still. Like, the question I had intended to ask uh, got asked, and my, oh. my hand was still raised in Zoom. And then, you know, I had more to, to talk to Fred Van Vliet about, but I worded this question really poorly in a way that was... You know, it basically came out like, hey, um, you know, can you do the work for media and tell us what more we need to be doing, um, you know, to, to further these messages and stuff. And, and it wasn't Fred understood and it wasn't my intent to be like, hey, do the emotional labor and, and the research for us and tell us what to do. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I was trying to be conversational and additive to the to the conversation from a media perspective. But, yeah, so stuff like that still comes up. And, and then afterwards, you're like, gosh. I'm an asshole. That's a, it's a terribly worded question. But so I, I don't think, you know, there are probably some people who never think twice about it because, you know, I think this stuff affects different personality types and different anxiety levels differently. Um, but yeah, it's always, uh, it's almost always still ner- a nervous thing. Now, before we get into some basketball talk, I just want to, you know, get one piece of advice from you from anyone that you know is trying to get into sports journalism has maybe an interest in sports journalism maybe once what's one piece of advice that you know you can give your younger self when you were maybe starting out and thinking about getting into this 
What's one thing that you would love to tell yourself looking back now? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, um, you know, again, if your situation allows you to take advantage of whatever opportunities come up, even if you don't think they're going to be, you know, specific, like say you only want to be an NBA writer. Well, don't turn down podcast opportunities or don't turn down the opportunity to write about, um, you know, hockey or baseball if it comes up or, or don't, you know, if you want to be writing on this site, but you know, your school athletic department, it, it needs someone like all of those reps is so much of what you do when you're starting out is going to be transferable across sports and across topics anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't really know like what you're going to be best at yet. So like I would have, I would have thought, Oh, working for the athletic department at UBC didn't really help that much. Cause like, it's basically PR. It's not, it's not really the same thing. But those were also my first reps getting to do like feature writing where I could sit down with an athlete and talk to them. And I got to do play by play and color commentary reps. And yeah, sometimes I was doing like, you know, covering road games for the rugby team. And I don't really care that much about rugby. Um, But also like sometimes you get in good positions where like I was the, the main beat person for their women's hockey team that year. And they had this historic season where they went from being a two win team to being like a final eight team. Um, and you know, the, both the basketball teams were pretty good that year. So, so getting to do some play by play and stuff for that. And that's all stuff that like, you know, zoom out and look at where you want to go. And maybe you don't see the value in getting those reps because it's, you know, women's hockey or it's rugby or it's, you know, the athletic department instead of covering the NBA. Um, but all that stuff can, can kind of add up and it's, you know, you can make some connections or whatever, but mostly it's about growing your skill set. And, you know, even if you want to do, if you want to be writing about the NBA for this website, you know, a lot of the reps you're going to get as you come up, the skills you're learning and the ways you're developing are transferable. So, um, you know, try to keep that in mind and don't turn down too many opportunities that, that can make you better. Absolutely. So let's uh, let's start talking some Raptors because we had uh, the Raptors had a, a big year. Um, a lot of people, a lot of teams, when they offload a guy like Kawhi, when they lose a starter like Danny Green, you don't recover that the the way that the Raptors recovered, right? And a lot of guys have to step up to make that happen. You know, with Fred VanVleet, Norm Powell, Pascal all increasing their averages, OG Ananobi. Uh, even Serge Ibaka from last year had a great season. So a lot of things that you can attribute it to. Come playoff time, it was very disappointing to go down in, in that Boston series. Not not because, you know, they were the better team or anything like that, but it felt like the Raptors could have won that series. Maybe if it was, you know, any, any home court advantage, played a factor, whatever the case may be. But I want to hear from you. What grade do you give this season? Because there were a lot of ups and downs, and especially with COVID nineteen splitting the season in half, like it's been, it's been a long year. And and honestly, as a Raptors fan, to have to be the reigning champion for that long, yeah, it's definitely a great blessing. So we're not complaining. But what do you, what grade do you give the season uh, this year? Yeah, honestly, I'd probably say a B. Um, you know, B to B plus range. I went back and I looked at some of my preseason predictions, and I, and I know you know, the way that we all work is we, we set our predictions ahead of time. And then as things happen, our expectations change, right? So if you, we went in the season and my expectation for the Raptors was like, I I think I projected them to finish third in the East and be out in the second round. And it happened to be out in the second round of Boston. And I was like, Oh, they'll have an elite defense and an average offense. And that'll be good enough to get them to the second round. And that's it. And that's how it turned out. But because of the path they took to get there, you know, where they outperformed expectations of the regular season so much, you know, at the end, it felt kind of like a disappointment, even though it was right in line with expectations at the start. So um, to me, that's kind of a B to B plus, you know, I would have said before the relaunch, probably B plus, And then some of the specifics of how they sputtered, uh, maybe, maybe knock it down to a B, particularly with Pascal Siakam, who mm-hmm. obviously there's tons and tons of room to still be optimistic, yeah. um, but seeing him kind of go in the wrong direction for those couple of weeks there, uh, took some of the shine off, off the strong jump he took in the regular season. Um, but, you know, I, I think mostly it's okay. And obviously it's uh, you see Milwaukee get knocked out and you see the way Miami and Boston matched up. And it's like, man, the Raptors really could have got back yeah. to the finals yeah, and maybe absolutely. push the Lakers. So, you know, all of that stuff is, is difficult. But com- like 
rewinding back to where we were at the start of the season, I still think they more or less ended up roughly where we expected them. It's yeah, just yeah. maybe that's more of a missed opportunity than we anticipated. Yeah, and I think as a Raptors fan, that's where you bang your head almost because you're like, we could have for sure done some damage in the conference finals. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think with the Raptors' defensive poise and, and their skill set, I think they would have definitely been able to contain a lot of guys that really had their uh, – you know, they're ones with, with, with the with the what is it, the Celtics? Yeah, the Celtics. Yeah. And that's the unfortunate part just because like you like you said, Blake, you know, we if you look at if you look take a look back at the preseason predictions, Raptors kind of landed exactly where we expect them to land, but despite you know, other than you know fishing second. Not Sam Mitchell, not where he expected. Yeah, Sam Mitchell. Yeah. I don't know. I I I, <laughs> Quite I, the I, I questioned that they brought him on, and they he said that we we finished out of the playoff picture. I believe it was, and yeah. so that was very yeah. interesting. But you know, considering you know people who actually, I mean, I don't want to say who actually cover the Raptors and, and and follow the Raptors. Obviously, Sam does, but you know, we all expect them to be maybe a second round exit. If we would really, we would, I think we would really maybe not overachieve, but we would, you know. It would be a very, very good season if we went to the conference finals. Sure. Obviously, it's a missed opportunity seeing as, you know, the Raptors, I I found kind of, they didn't really get beat by Boston. I really have trouble saying that. I, I think we the Raptors did a lot of things that just didn't allow them themselves to win. They kind of beat themselves in that, in that second round matchup against Boston. So, you know, to you, Blake, what do you feel the Raptors did well this season and didn't do well? You know, one of my things... And you brought it up, Pascal kind of just not performing in the bubble. I think the Raptors as a team, as an organization, should have done a very good job to keep everybody, you know, on the same page during that time off. I think that's something that really hindered them. Um, but, you know, on to you. What do you think the Raptors did well this season and didn't do well? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that they did well is obviously on the defensive end, right? You know, they they lost Kawhi Leonard, who at his best is an all-world defender. They lost Danny Green, who was, you know, borderline all-defense that season. And they were arguably even better on defense. And some of that goes to Nick Nurse with the creativity and, you know, finding, utilizing the strengths of, of the specific guys he had on the roster instead of being like, no, this is the scheme and this is the way it goes. Um, I think, you know, obviously a lot of credit goes to the players, too, that they had five starters who, if they played a full season, probably would have had an argument for all defense too. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the most impressive thing. I think, I think even, even accounting for Siakam's playoffs, the, just the fact that he was able to take that jump in usage is encouraging. Um, you know, I kind of just went through a bunch of data for a piece I have coming out at the athletic on Tuesday going into, you know, Siakam, nobody in recent NBA history has taken back-to-back jumps in responsibility the way Siakam has. So, Absolutely. That's fair. So, like, we don't even have anything to compare him to. Like, like Paul George kind of followed a similar trajectory, or Giannis kind of followed a similar trajectory, but they did that over the span of, like, four years instead of two years. Of course. Um, so it's really hard to be like, oh, he should have been better, because, like, you know, nobody has ever really done that two years in a row. So there's there's even room for optimism there. And then in terms of things that they didn't do well, you know, I thought the half court offense was a problem pretty much all year long. Yeah, uh, they sure. did they did figure it out late game in the regular season. Like they had the number two clutch offense during the regular season. Uh, you know, a lot more Siakam guard pick and roll that was pretty effective. But for whatever reason, uh, and you know, largely it's because Boston's a very good defense. Like we talked all year about how the Raptors defense was so good at shutting stars down. And then Boston's defense did that Toronto to Toronto and everyone blames Siakam instead of the defense um, when really it's, you know, probably somewhere in between. So uh, I think, you know, the offensive side is where they have a lot more need to grow. And I think, you know, obviously you have to be careful of that because you don't want to add a bunch of one way players and then you just yeah. shift the, the weakness to the defensive end. But I do think if you're looking ahead, you know, they need a couple more guys who can create their own shot and especially put, pressure on the rim um you know and, and how you do that positionally is a is a little tough because norman powell and terrence davis are both on the roster and they're a little bit skill redundant and you know you probably don't want to play them two three too often but that's exactly the kind of skill you need a little bit more of in your long yeah. lineup uh, on top of you know you could use a stretchy or playmaking five next to siakam if gasol and abaka are gone so um, you know, I think as you shop for these kind of bargain guys in free agency, because they don't have a lot of flexibility, you know, there's going to be a premium on offense and maybe specifically guys who can 
uh, get a bucket themselves, whether that's guards in the draft at 29 or, or another wing for the bench or uh, whatever it is, that that's the area where I'm looking and it's, you know, that's, that's what the weakness was all season long. And, and you know, whether it was personnel based or coaching based or whatever, they never figured it out. So yeah. that's, uh, you know, that's the area you got to go back to the drawing board yeah. for next and, year. And one thing for me that I found super frustrating, and I had said this almost like a broken record from the beginning of the year, maybe even some parts of last year too. I felt that the Raptors' defensive rebounding was abysmal. I felt they gave up a lot of extra possessions. Like I don't have the stats on this, so I don't know the exact, you know, exact metrics for it. But just watching game by game and just giving up the second chance points and extra possessions, I felt there were a few games where they lost because of those extra possessions. It's really hard to win games when you're giving up all those extra possessions on offensive rebounding. So or sorry, our lack of defensive rebounding rather. So for me personally, defensive rebounding was a big thing. I think that they need to really improve on that. I saw some talks of, I don't know, I don't know if this is still happening, but around when the Clippers were eliminated, there was talks of Montrez Harrell coming Mm -hmm. to the Raptors. And whether that's going to happen or not, we were talking about it on the podcast and that kind of person, the energy that, you know, at his best, what he could bring to the table, I think would be a good fit. Uh, he would probably fit defensively if he, you know, just at his best. It's really hard because what, the Trez we got in the bubble is not Trez that we had in the season. It was two different guys, the attitude and everything. It was just a whole different person. So I don't know that I definitely or certainly love it, but it's uh, it's definitely an interesting thing to keep uh, to keep our eyes on. But that being said, big summer this year for the Raptors. So just to give everyone a clear picture. The only players on contract next season are Kyle Lowry, Norman Powell, Pat McCaw, Stanley Johnson, Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi, and then the rookies. So TD, Matt Thomas, and Dewan Hernandez. So outside of Kyle and Pascal, there's really nobody making more than 10 mil. I think just Norm is making the 10 just mil. Just over 10 mil. Um, so there's a lot, of, a lot of questions, right? Because this is a big summer, but next summer is an even bigger summer, right? So this summer... The trickiness is Fred Van Vliet is is a free agent on the market. And Fred Van Vliet is, yes, I know he's from Rockford, Illinois, but he's born and bred Toronto Raptor. (laughs) So we consider him a Toronto man. Um, He just embraced the culture. He is a part of what we do here. He's, you know, every day just continues to get better and is becoming, it's it's almost like he's turning into Kyle Lowry before our eyes and it's a beautiful sight to see. Um, But the tricky thing is, at his size, at his current skill set, and and given his you know the last few years, he's going to command twenty five plus million, and a team like the Knicks will pay him twenty five plus million. As the Raptors, do you pay him twenty five million, or do you think he's worth a little bit less? I think Zade was telling me before here there was a post on Legion Hoops today, Blake, that said there's a report that the Raptors are going to offer the four year eighty mil, so twenty twenty a year. Where do you personally evaluate Freddie, and what do you think is the best option for the Raptors moving forward, specifically with him? Yeah, I mean the Fred thing is a little complicated. Can, sorry, can I just go back to the Montrezl Harrell thing yes, for, please, for a second before you? So, so yeah, I'm with you on the defensive rebounding. The Raptors rank 22nd in defensive rebounding uh, during the season, and obviously, if you're an elite defense, you'd like that to be higher because you're getting all these stops and then you're giving up second chances. Um, I do think part of it is just like their scheme is so aggressive and guys are running around all over the place and they play a bit of zone that like, that's always going to hurt your D de- like a conservative defense that keeps their, keeps their power forward and center closer to the paint is going to have probably a better defensive rebounding rate than a really for aggressive sure. one. Sure. Um, in terms of Trez though, like I like him as a player for the Clippers. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't uh, like, he's actually like, like uh, low key, a pretty bad defensive rebounder for, for his position. Um, and, you know, he's he's a little undersized and obviously he has the energy and stuff. And what he brings in terms of a pick and roll threat offensively would really fill a need for the Raptors in the second unit. But um, defensively, I have some questions there. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to respond no, to that. You're absolutely right. And, and it's almost because Nick Nurse has built a culture now, um, not just Nick Nurse, but the whole organization. Masai Jiri's built this culture top down where defense is the number one priority. And they made that very clear a couple of years ago when they shipped mm-hmm. out DeMar. You know, we love DeMar. The city loved DeMar. The franchise loved DeMar. But at the end of the day, they needed to make a move. Obviously, Kawhi was on the market. 
But they picked up Danny Green and they surrounded him with defensive players. And Nick Nurse is a defensive-minded guy. He's thrown out his own. In the last two years, guys, I personally think Nick Nurse has changed defense in the league. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have not seen this many zones run uh, like this effectively b- between Boston, between Miami, between Toronto. Mm-hmm. I just I think what Nick Nurse brought to the table, he needs the personnel for it. So now it becomes really hard because you you need system guys now, right? You can't get a, a guy who's going to be great, like you said, on the, the PNR, give you really good offensive output or offensive um, performance. But then on the defensive end, you really not show up because when you work as a unit, when you're playing a zone, anyone who's played basketball knows a zone needs all five people to work together to be moving at the same time, to be on the same page. So that's a great point you brought up there. Yeah, and I mean, look back to the to the start of the season and, and like look at where Rondé ended up in terms of his defensive value to the Raptors and his versatility. But that first stretch of the season, he couldn't get on the floor because even a guy as good as him defensively still wasn't up to, you know, up to speed with, with the way the Raptors play defense. So yeah. um, you do have to be a little careful there. Now, to be completely honest, um, if say they lose Marc Gasol and they lost Kawhi and Danny Green the year before that, and, and you know, they might have to tweak things a little bit you know, the sign of a good coach is getting the most out of the roster that you have, not necessarily just Building fitting new pieces your into set. your system. So, yeah, for sure. um, you know, there's a little bit of both there for uh, for Nick Nurse to, to sort out and for the front office to sort out. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that makes it tough, right? And it makes it – it's one of those things that it always makes it a little hard to know what the Raptors are going to do, and, and they love it this way because so much of what they're trying to figure out when they sign guys, especially – you know, say they retain Fred Van Bleed and they're only working with their mid-level exception to add a guy this summer uh, or this offseason, rather. Uh, you know, that's not a lot of money, so you're not competing for the top names. A lot of what they're looking for sometimes is, like, stuff that hasn't shown up yet or, you know, hey, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, you know, didn't have a lot of market because teams were looking at what he can't do. What if we look at different ways to utilize what he can do? So you kind of have to be outside of the box a little bit with the the bargain level guys. Obviously, these are, like, tertiary questions for the Raptors this offseason and Fred's the big one so sorry I didn't mean to detract from the Fred no conversation no worries, uh, no worries. this much now in terms of Fred's actual value and what the the bidding is going to be like for him I actually did I so I was curious about this too so I did an exercise recently with a couple of my colleagues at the athletic where I basically played the role of Fred Van Vliet and we had someone in the role of the Raptors the Knicks and uh the Pistons trying to figure out, you know, what a negotiation might go like. We were supposed to have someone to do the Suns, too, and it didn't work out um, because I think the Suns are a a legitimate threat to come after him as well. Um, But anyway, where that deal ended up, I think, was like four years, 90 million after, um, you know, after it it gets bid up. And interesting to me, anyway, was our Knicks guy bowed out around 90 or 92 million. So, um, you know, maybe the Knicks won't go to 100. Maybe he's just more conservative than the Knicks will actually be. Um, but he bowed out, you know, before it got to 100. Our Pistons guy bowed out at around 80 million, just because the Pistons are so far away from contention that yeah. it maybe doesn't make sense to to throw the house at, at Fred when you know by the time your team's ready to be good, Fred will be 29 or 30. Um, you know, I still think Phoenix and, and New York are, are legitimate suitors, so I'd, I'd be surprised if the Raptors get it done at only 80 million. Uh, but also. You know, this is where relationships come in a little bit too. And like, if the Raptors come out at twelve oh one, whatever day they're allowed to negotiate, and say, "Look, Fred, don't even go to the market. Here's your eighty million. You know, we're showing you that we're showing you how much we value you. We know that you understand the twenty twenty one cap situation and stuff. You know, maybe something like that can can kind of avoid the bidding process. Yeah. But at this point, like, Fred's bet on himself twice, and he didn't do that to take a steep hometown discount, right? Yeah, yeah, and and that's actually one thing that Zayd and I were talking about off air, because we were saying, and and let's make it clear, we both love Fred Van Vliet and would love to have him back, but at the end of the day, we understand the stipulation just as much as everyone does, right? With with bringing him back and next year and how the team is going to look and cap space and all that, but we were saying he went undrafted, like this dude went undrafted. Okay, a bunch of teams passed out on him. He said, okay, that's fine second you second rounders don't don't draft me yeah. i'm not looking for a two-way i'm gonna work i'm gonna join the summer league and i'm gonna pick get picked up and he did so he got picked up he won a championship in the g league he won a championship in the nba and now when it comes down to it it's why if i'm fred why would i take a hometown discount and, and why 
you know, I understand the sentiment and wanting to be with your team, but when you're when you've had the journey that he's had, mm-hmm. you got to go get your money, man. But that, but and you can't like as a Toronto fan, you got to be happy for the guy and for everything that he's done. And I think it's a testament to the organization and the culture that the Raptors have built because he's not the only product of the system. Norman Powell is a product of the system. OG Ananobi is a product of the system. Lest we forget, DeLon Wright, he was, JV, yeah, he was, yeah. are products of the system. So this is something that there's clearly something in place that's organic, that's helping the team find the best talent and make the most out of them. Mm-hmm. I personally think Matt Thomas is the next on that list. I love, <laughs> love me some Matt Thomas. But you know what? I'll ask you this, Zade. Money aside, you're Toronto. Are you, do you? How much do you love Fred Van Vliet that you want to keep him? It's it, you can't put money aside because money is one of the the driving factors it, in, it's in a the huge situation. Driving factor, but it's like you got to understand that he's an undersized guard at the end of the day. Okay, he's Kyle Lowry's an undersized guard, but Kyle Lowry's a different undersized. Yeah, guard. it's it's a <laughs> slightly different story with him. So I don't know. It's it's a tough story, and and I don't know, Blake. You might disagree with me, but um, that that's sort of where we are. But Zay, where, where you are, where are you at with this Fred thing? The reason why I disagree with him not taking a hometown discount, obviously I'm not Freddie. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know how he feels. But, yeah, sure, he's betting himself twice. G League, Raptors picked him up. But, like, you're also going back to the same franchise that invested in you when you were in the G League, gave you an opportunity, and gave you an opportunity in the NBA. And not only did they invest in you, you know, obviously financially it's a lot less of an investment when he was in the G League and when he and his, his current contract now, but... They invested in you and gave you minutes. They developed you. They made you into the player that you've become, and they've really, really helped you. You know, become that guy who can contribute on a championship caliber team. So, you know, when you're talking about him taking a hometown discount, you know, I mean, twenty million is still a lot of money. Four years, eighty million is still a lot of money yeah. to be made. And for a guy who say Raptors pick up Giannis who's probably going to be the third option on a team, third or fourth option on a team, on a championship-caliber team, and still making $20 million a year, as Fred Van Vliet, if I was Fred Van Vliet, I wouldn't be mad at that at all. Now, you know, you can go get $25 million elsewhere. elsewhere. You can pay less taxes elsewhere. You can play maybe somewhere that's warmer. Obviously, all those things come into play. But, you know, what the Raptors offer, if they were to go ahead, like, as you said, Blake, and offer that $80 million, here's four years, $80 million, just stay with us. Don't consider anybody else. Here's the money up front. Here's the investment. You know, as Freddie, I think that's a very good deal as well. And you still have a chance to compete for a title in the next four years. Yeah. Where I also, you know, want to get Blake in on this is there's another moving part to this, another moving piece to this, and that's Kyle Lowry. And Kyle Lowry is on his last year of his deal. He got extended this year for one more year. Aging, undersized point guard. Aging pretty Pretty well, though, you know. Gracefully. Yeah, very, 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 still very well. Still taking all those charges. Still taking charges. Still, honestly, he was carrying in that in that Boston series, too. You know, I, th- I found that when the Raptors were really stagnant and when the, the half-court offense was just, you know, not being run well, he was the one to really pick the Raptors up and, and take those shots that we needed and, 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 and score the buckets that the Raptors needed in the most crucial time. So how do, you know, Blake, how do the Raptors move forward with Lowry, with his contract, you know, what decisions do they make with Lowry going forward? Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about that one is that, like, you can wait on it. And you don't you don't really have a choice but to wait because he's not ex- he's not eligible for another extension this offseason. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't do it. So, so you're looking at a situation where your decision is not um, trade, extend, or free agency. It's just free agency or trade. And when you get into the cap math and you get into, you know, okay – to trade kind of the heart of the franchise, you need a pretty good return. Even if like, even if this isn't a championship season for the Raptors, there's a lot of other reasons to want Lowry around for his leadership and for um, the fan base and what he's meant to your organization and stuff like that. And, and, you know, I I'm a little skeptical that a good deal is going to be there to move him. So I think this is a case where, you know, you're probably going to make that decision in 2021. And by that point, you'll have an idea of what, that free agent pursuit looks like, right? So you you get, I know it looks like a big question now, but when you actually have to make that decision, you're going to have a lot more information than you do now. So I don't know that that one will be um, really tough. You know, let, let's let say there's, let's play out the scenario where they 
are able to re-sign Van Vliet and Giannis mm-hmm. wants to come, you know, Lowry is probably not a part of that without taking a significant discount just yeah. because they'd have to clear him, his cap hold off the books to get the Giannis money. And then they don't have, you know, his rights to, to go over the cap to re-sign him. So, um, you know, maybe Lowry at that point, he'll be going on 36, you know, maybe he's open to that kind of thing, but also maybe, you know, he's wants to, to make more money still, you know, yeah, we, it's, it's similar to the Fred conversation is like, you know, yeah, all that money seems like a lot of money. So what's a little bit extra, but also if someone will pay you that money, <laughs> you know, why not, why not just take it? Yeah. yeah. So like, I, I do believe in hometown discounts and discounts to compete for a, a championship. I just think that they're like, you know, especially with a guy in Fred's situation, his first, what'll be, you know, three to five year deal. Um, you know, I think that's more of on the margins than it is like the deciding factor. So, you know, that might be the difference between 20 and 22 million. But when you start talking 20 and 25 million and it looks like 20 million over four years, you know, maybe that's that's too hometowny uh, mm-hmm. a discount. So um, I don't really know. But the Lowry thing is a little more straightforward. I, I think Lowry's back for the year, you know, continues to play this leadership role and continues to be kind of the sometimes 1A and sometimes 1B to Siakam and, and you know, to, to just be Kyle Lowry. I, I think I think that they've experienced over the last seven or eight years that uh, Kyle Lowry being a part of your organization is a uh, is good culture builder and it's a good good way to kind of develop your younger guys in a winning environment. For sure. Now, I had a question for you. Were you in that press conference at the end of the year, the last one when Lowry was talking about his leadership position with the guys? Yeah, yeah, it was great. It was – uh, I think that was like one of the first time. Obviously, last year, um, post championship, he was buzzed, so there was, was a lot candid. of emotion he coming candid, out of yeah. out of Kyle. But for the most part, I find he's pretty, you know, business. Like Reserved. I'm all business. I'm here, cut to the chase to answer the questions. I'll give you here and there. But the genuine emotion that he expressed, being the leader of those guys, it showed what kind of individual Kyle Lowry is, and and I think it's. It's super easy to underrate Kyle Lowry because, A, he plays in the north, you know, Canada, outside of Canadians. Nobody rides for us, even half of as hard as we ride for ourselves. So that's one thing. Um, he's undersized. He's not really – he's not a score first point guard. Not flashy. You know, and, and in an era where point guards are usually score first, flashy, athletic guys, he's not that dude. He's taking the charges. He's facilitating the offense. Mm-hmm. He's your leader. This year, there was a lot of turmoil in the Clippers' locker room, and and a lot of it came down to we don't have a vocal leader, right? They have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Kawhi Leonard, we all know, is not a vocal leader. He's a lead-by-example, and he's a great example. And we saw, you know, the effect that he had on the younger guys in Toronto. But I think what happened in the Clippers' locker room this year is not just a testament to Kyle Lowry and his leadership, but I think you had mentioned it earlier, Blake. Things don't get out of that locker room. You know, that team is professional. Guys are, you know, they're here to do business. They're here to work hard, and they're not here to mess around. And they talked about it at the, at the end of the, the championship run last year. They said, you guys will never know what happened behind closed doors, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, it's not like like all this stuff the Clippers dealt with. It's not like the Raptors didn't have exactly, that kind of thing, exactly, too. Exactly, 100%. And I, think, just, that's I very, think there was a better, like, a better sense of absolutely. this is what it's going to take to win a championship. And, yeah. and maybe... You know, maybe that's the case of having a roster full of guys who the title had eluded them to that point in their career. You know, some of these guys, I'm not sure. Um, but, yeah, like... They acted like they were champions from the get-go. Like, right right when the, the signings were made, they were talking like champions. Patrick Beverly did a media stop all over the, the big media companies in the <laughs> States and was telling everyone where the, where the team in L.A., where the team to be. You know, Kawhi's yeah. filming commercials with a crown on his head. Um, but, Zayd, I want to ask you this, man. How valuable is Kyle Lowry's leadership? And at the end of your career, when it comes down to what he's done for the Raptors, you know, we were mm. the Raptors were essentially irrelevant for a bunch of years before right. Kyle Lowry got there, right? And in terms of playoff performance, there's no better run in franchise history than what Kyle Lowry was here. So you consider the the run that he put the Raptors on. You consider that he you consider the run that he was on, and then you consider everything you know he did after that with the championship. Where do we go from here? Do you think that they should just let him retire as a Raptor, or does he should we let him walk and perhaps go to Philly? 
I, I obviously it's it's nice to let him retire as a raptor. I think as you know, it, it's just funny. We keep getting these franchise guys who we always think are going to be, you know, whether you know you got Vince Carter who you, was a franchise guy who you thought would be you know the lifer. You got Chris Bosh who was a franchise guy. Maybe he'll be a lifer. Demar Derozan we knew he wanted to be the lifer. Kyle Lowry wasn't exactly a lifer. Wasn't exactly always loved by Raptors and Raptors fans. You know, you know he was up for on the trading block earlier on in, in his Raptor tenure. He had a lot of playoff struggles earlier on in his Raptor tenure. So what's really unique about Kyle Lowry is that he's faced so much scrutiny, especially by his own fans, by his own, you know, by his own people, essentially, you could say. And he's like, he's, you know, proven and he's come out triumphant by winning that title last year. So what he means to the Raptors organization is actually so much significant. It's so significant more than a lot of the star players that they've had in the past. So, for him to retire as a Raptor, obviously, if that can work out, I think financially would be the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be the biggest sentiment. You know, everyone says, oh, Lowry would be the first one to get a statue outside Scotiabank Arena or whatever it may be. So, obviously, keeping him here, his leadership, I I, I, I would love for him to be like Udonis Haslam. You know, okay. a guy who kind of plays out his career with that same team, you know, slowly. It's like 2027, and we're like, wait, Kyle Lowry's still in the Raptors? <laughs> He's still a player? He's not a coach yet? Like, it's, it's exactly like that. I would love to see him go that Udonis Haslam route, and I think he deserves it, honestly. Um, I just think it's, it's going to be up to him and, and and how he sees, you know, you know, can I get more money? Because he's been cashing in on, on the checks in the last few years. So if he wants more money, maybe he wants to, you know, retire and play in Philadelphia, his hometown. That might come into it. But, you know, obviously I would love to see Kyle Lowry retire as a Raptor. Finally, just one more question before you know we end this this phone call. Um, heading into next season, Blake, what do you think? Maybe are the are, are what are your thoughts heading into next season? What do you think the Raptors need the most? What do you think the Raptors need to avoid the most as well? And you know, how do you also see that next NBA season playing out as a whole? Yeah, um, you know, it's gonna be it's gonna be weird. This is gonna be the strangest off season I think we've ever had, maybe other than the one coming out of the 2011 lockout um, where this is going to be compressed. You know, we still don't know what's going to happen with the salary cap and we're less than a month out from the draft right now. You know, we don't know, are there going to be teams that are cash strapped and and they're willing to deal guys for fairly cheap? Or is it going to be a situation where, you know, they artificially inflate the cap. So there's, there's no impact like that. Like we don't really know. And it makes me wonder, you know, if it goes a certain way, is this a situation like the rare situation where MLSE having deep pockets can benefit the Raptors? Because, you know, that's in a salary cap league, you only get opportunities to, to kind of flex your financial muscle sometimes. And obviously the yeah. Raptors were a tax team in the championship year, but it's not like you can just go out and sign a bunch of free agents and be a tax team. You have to be in the right situation for that. But maybe you can buy an extra draft pick or kick in some cash to move up in the draft or to buy a 2021 draft pick from a, you know one of the teams that are adversely affected. Uh, you know Something that's, that's come up in conversations is like, is there a G League this year? And if there is, do some teams opt out? And then the Raptors player development advantage gets even larger uh, in relative terms. So uh, a lot to figure out on that front. You know, if I'm the Raptors, I think I think the, the needle you're trying to thread is, of course, that 2021 flexibility. You don't, you know, you don't want to take too aggressive a step back this year because, one, you're probably not going to be able to get bad enough to, to truly tank and, and get in the mix for a high pick anyway. Um, and it's probably not worth, you know, losing your playoff streak and losing out on playoff experience to get, like, the number 10 pick. Um, instead of the number, say, 17 pick or something like that. Um, so you have to you have to keep 2021 in mind. And that means, you know, maybe Serge Ibaka goes elsewhere because he wants a multi-year deal. Or it means maybe you miss out on your top mid-level target because he can get four years somewhere else and you don't want to guarantee that kind of money. Yeah, um, you know, sure. maybe it means Norman Powell gets shopped around a little bit in different trade frameworks yeah. uh, just to get that extra salary off the books for 2021. So, um you know, I, I think, and, and then I guess the other the other thing to that is like you can't you can't live only for 2021. Also, right? Like if you know, obviously, if you think if Masai thinks Giannis might really come here and he doesn't sign the supermax extension this summer, until you're told no, you kind of keep that possibility open. If he signs the supermax, you know, maybe you look at that free agent market and instead you try to jump it and be 
more aggressive in an Oladipo trade or a Bradley Beal trade or, you know, maybe Joel Embiid becomes available. Who knows? Um, So I think, you know, I think you want to keep 2021 in mind. Absolutely. And I think flexibility is always important and always valuable. But you have to remember, too, while you're doing that, that flexibility is not like you don't win the championship for the leanest cap sheet. So if if something occurs that could, you know, materially change your outlook, uh, you kind of have to weigh those things. You can't be all in one basket. I think I think that's something the Raptors have always done a really good job of balancing. So, um, you know, and and again, you know, the first day of free agency, Giannis could sign the Supermac extension and it ends a lot of this for us. So, um, but (laughs) yeah, that's, that's going to be everything, you know, everything we analyzed this summer is good or this off season. I keep saying summer out of habit. Everything we analyzed this off season is going to be okay you know, 30 seconds on how it affects 2020. And then everyone's going to be like, but how does it affect 2021? Uh, and Fred's going to be the first one with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Blake, thank you so much for joining us tonight, man. We we honestly really appreciate it. It was, it was dope to talk about, not just basketball, man, but just to really understand your journey and your path. And, you know, as two aspiring guys and, you know, we don't really do the journalism side of it. And I'm sure we'll have you on sometime later to ask you even more questions about, you know, the future of that industry now that everything's being so techy. But um, as definitely two people who are aspiring in this pocket, in a very tough pocket, it's great to hear, you know, the feedback that you had for us. And, and it was awesome to talk. So thank you so much for your time, man. Yeah, no problem. Anytime, guys. And again, sorry that, the you know, my path isn't the most repeatable and, and that some of the <laughs> advice from it isn't, uh, you know, maybe not something that could be replicated exactly, but I think there uh, were you know, the, tons of the big takeaways are you you have to kind of be self motivated and have that passion uh, above all else because in most cases you're probably going to have to eat some crap, unfortunately. So yeah, absolutely, sure. absolutely. With that being said, again, thank you so much, sir, and uh, have yourself a good night. Yeah, thanks so much, guys.